Tonight's message is entitled, it is entitled, Overcoming Like Jesus. Overcoming Like Jesus. But before we begin, I just ask that you'll bow your heads with me for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Bible. We thank you that this is the living word of God. I pray that you would teach us. Pray that your Holy Spirit would be here in a special way. Lord, we give the time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. A number of years ago, in the 90s, some skepticism was going around specifically regarding a man in the Bible. And this individual, this man, his name is used more than any other name in the entirety of Scripture. Can you guess what name is used more than any other name in the entirety of the Bible? Take a guess. Someone said Jesus. Who? John. It's a good, good guess. Anybody else? It's not Jesus, strangely enough, and it's not John. It is actually the name, it's David. It's actually David. David is the name that is used more than any other name in the entirety of Scripture. King David. And the, speaking of this king, the ancient king, the psalmist, King David in the Bible, now, this idea came forth that maybe actually David's just a fictional character, that he actually never existed, and you know, it's nice that the Jews believe in him and the Christians, but there's really nothing in archaeology that backs up the idea that there was this great king, David, that the Bible refers to. Interestingly enough, we look back at a book that was written in 1992 by Philip Davies, and he says in this book, he said, is, the Israel of biblical literature is at least, for the most part, not a historical entity at all. So this idea of this ancient Israel, it's not really even legitimate. It's not even true, at least generally. And he goes on to say in his book, he says, The biblical empire of David has not the faintest echo in the archaeological record as of yet. That this man that is so revered by the Jews and the Christians may not have even existed. This is the argument. Now, before we go any further, I want you to think about this for a moment because this is a very serious issue. Because you may remember that in, in the biblical account, in the Gospels, Jesus is making his way toward Jerusalem and he's riding upon a certain kind of animal. Do you remember what that animal was? He's riding on a donkey. And the people are yelling out a certain word that we don't typically use. What is that word? Hosanna! Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Blessed be, it talks about the son of David. Over and over, it, you read about Jesus being referred to as the son of David. Now think about this with me for a moment. If, in fact, David never existed, do you realize this causes a big problem for Christianity? Yes or no? Jesus was the son of a man that never existed. That would be a little bit troubling, wouldn't you say? This is, this is a difficult issue. But keep in mind when this book called In Search of Ancient Israel, no, notice what year. It was written in 1992. And the very next year, archaeologists in 1993 were digging in an area in northern Israel in an area they called Tel Dan. And they were, they were taking, uh, they were, you know, working is in their archaeological work. And one of them picked up something that was like a brick, a stone. And as they picked it up, it dropped and it turned over. And they discovered an inscription written on this, this stela. 
And as they notice this, you see, archaeologists, when they're digging, it's not like every day you just find some kind of inscription. So when you find something, this is quite interesting. Oh, I wonder what it is. So they find this, and as they look into it and they begin to read, what does it say? They end up discovering that on this stone, this is a picture of the stone here. This is the, the you know, King David Stila, they call Actually, on this, on this stone were the words speaking of this King David or the line of David, this great king. Now, notice what we read here. It says in Biblical Archaeological Review, Archaeology Review, a team of archaeologists digging in northern Galilee found a remarkable inscription from the 9th century BC, BCE that refers to both the house of David and the what? The king of Israel. Is it not interesting that this man, in 1992, he comes out and says, listen, maybe King David never even existed. I mean, we have no archaeological evidence that this guy actually existed. And the very next year, God allows them to drop a stone. Oh, what is that? And guess what? King David has been discovered in the rock records. You know, have we discovered the name of everybody in the Bible in the rock records? No, we haven't. Well, we've discovered at least 50 names of people in the Old Testament in the rock records outside of Scripture that were men that were written about in Scripture. So the evidence continues to build that testifies to the truthfulness of the Word of God. It doesn't prove it. It testifies to the veracity of the Scriptures. But the reality is, is this would be difficult if King David didn't exist. It would also, uh, you know, call into question who Jesus really was. This would actually call into to question who Jesus really was. But the question is, sometimes people say, well, did Jesus really exist? Or is he just a mythological character that was written of by these, uh, you know, ancient Jews? Or, you know, the Christians came up with this man? Or a Roman conspiracy, what have you? But think about this for, with me for a moment. How do we know that people like Alexander the Great existed? How do we know? History, books, right? I mean, we take the testimony of ancient historians, and nobody questions whether Alexander the Great existed. How do we know that a man like Jesus existed? Well, we say, well, we have the four Gospels. They're quite clear about that. Uh, and then people say, yeah, yeah, but how about outside of the Bible? The interesting thing is that we have historians, several historians from around the time of Jesus that lived just around the time of Jesus or just after who wrote about this man. We have Suetonius. We have Josephus, who is the Jewish historian. We have Tacitus, who is the greatest or one of the greatest historians of ancient Rome. This man was not a follower of Christ, but he knew history. He was a man who lived just around the time of Christ, just after. And notice what this man Tacitus, the greatest historian of ancient Rome, he wrote in his works, Christus from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of our procurators, Pontius Pilatus. This man understood. And if you take just the secular writings that wrote about Jesus, we can basically have the, the gospel story that we talk about as Christians. Meaning people outside of the Bible recognize that these things, these were, these were actual historic events by a real man, Jesus of Nazareth. And he did these great and wonderful works. So the interesting thing is, okay, so Jesus existed. We have historical evidence that Jesus existed. But if it's just a fact, that only brings us so far. So what? So what? Some guy lived 2,000 years ago. He was a Jew and he died on a cross. A bunch of Jews have died on crosses. I mean, that's just history. But what is different about this one man? 
What distinguishes him from all other men in history? Why has the world been revolutionized because of this one individual? You know, it's interesting. There was a professor by the name of Peter W. Stoner. He was a mathematician, and he set out with his students to look into the mathematical probability that any one individual would fulfill the prophecies of the Messiah. So what he did is he took his, he took his, cor- his students in his course, and he said, listen, I want you to look into the Bible and discern how many prophecies there are in the Scriptures in the Old Testament that prophesied of the life, the work, and the character of the Messiah. Now, go to it. So they come back and they look and they discover that there are at least 300 prophecies or 300 specifics about the Messiah's life, character, and mission in the Old Testament. Now, so they say, okay, how many? There are at least 300. And then they say, well, when were these prophecies written? And they basically discovered that they were roughly about 1,000 years before Jesus' birth to about 400, they said. So now they're looking at these prophecies. Okay, we have 300 plus. They were written, you know, at least 400 years as a minimum. And so he gives an example of some of those prophecies like you have in in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, which is, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. We already talked about that prophecy. Jesus fulfilled this. Now, it's a strange prophecy, though, because it's a prophecy of this Messiah who would come, and he rides into Jerusalem on a what? On a donkey. So get the picture for a moment with me. So one out of how many people in earth's history have been kings that rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, do you think? One out of how many people in earth's history? Do you think one out of a hundred? How about one out of a thousand? have been kings that rode into Jerusalem. How about one out of 10,000? How about a million? Now, the reality is you say, no, that's silly. I mean, there's just, I'm sure not, I'm sure some have, for sure. But probably not all that many. But if he said, what if Peter W. Stoner said, let's say one in a billion, then people would say, oh, you're making it very difficult for him. You're making it way too difficult. And so he said, we'll be super conservative, actually ridiculously conservative. He said, let's say one in a hundred people throughout Earth's history, or one in 10, to the second power have been kings who rode into Jerusalem on a donkey of all things. Now he's being extremely conservative so you can't say, oh, he's trying to fudge the numbers. So then he goes on, he shows another one, Isaiah chapter 53, verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shears is dumb or silent, so he opened not his mouth. Notice what the text says. The text tells us that he was afflicted, he was brought to his death. You have a just man wrongly condemned to die, and in his judgment, he chooses not to defend himself. How many people in earth's history do you think have chosen to, they're being condemned for a crime they did not commit? Now, surely there have been many people who have been condemned to death for a crime they have never committed. True? But how many of those people do you think did not defend themselves as they were wrongly accused. Very, very few. Very, I mean, it would, it would be the height of insanity to not say, hey, I didn't do it. I, I mean, if you knew you were going to die, I mean, you say, listen, I, I swear I did not do this, right? But Jesus doesn't fight back. A just, a just man wrongly condemned to die, he doesn't defend himself. So the question is, he said, one out of how many people? Let's just try to figure out the probability. And he says, okay, if I said one in a billion or a trillion, you say, that's crazy. So he says, listen, let's be extremely conservative. He said, let's just say one in a thousand people throughout earth's history have died for crimes they didn't commit and didn't de- defend themselves in the midst of the ordeal. 
Now, just to give you, now you're students, and how many of you are in a math class right now? Okay, how many of you are, in a, uh, are taking statistics or probability right now? Okay, at least some of you. And I'll just give you a simple, simple thing. You, you know, I mean, you, you're in school. I haven't been in school for years. But it basically works something like this. Let's just say, and I'm making up these numbers, let's just say that one in every ten men, one in every ten men has a bald head. And one in every 100 men is missing a finger. So what is the probability that I'm going to run into someone that has both a bald head and a missing finger? You have one in 10, and you multiply it times one in 100, and you get one in a what? One in a thousand. So statistically, if I would run into, if those stats were right, that generally one out of a thousand men that you would run into would have both a missing finger and a bald head. Does that make sense? Yes or no? I guess not. Well, hopefully it does. Hopefully you get the idea. But nevertheless, get the idea here. So he goes through, he takes just eight of the prophecies, and he says, what's the probability of any one person fulfilling just eight of the 300 plus probability? Or these prophecies, rather. And he shows through mathematics, he goes through each one, he shows it's one in 10 to the 17th power. You say, I have no clue what that means. No, we don't. I'm not, we can't really picture it. So he gave an illustration in his book, Science Speaks. Peter Dobry Snorris said, if you take the state of Texas, the largest of the continental United States, and if you were to cover that state two feet deep with silver dollars. Now, somebody has a very keen eye. They will notice those are not silver dollars. They are what? They're 50 cent pieces, actually. But nevertheless, I, that, that's what I found. So I put those in. But nevertheless. So uh, you have, imagine with me, that these are $1 coins. They are silver dollars. And we cover the state of Texas. I was just there with my wife um, about a week ago. And it's a massive state. It takes forever to drive through that state. And so imagine the whole state is covered two feet deep with silver dollars. And you send out a blindfolded man into the entirety of the state. And one of the coins is marked with a black X. And you, this, this blindfolded man can walk as far as he wants through in the entire state of Texas, and all, he, and all he has to do is reach down on his first try and pull the one that he can't see that's marked with the black X, and there's only one. And the chance that he would be able to do that on his first try is 1 in 10 to the 17th power. Does this make sense, yes or no? So this is how many prophecies, mind you? Eight prophecies. He goes on and he says, well, let's look at 16, and then it's just massively impossible. He, then he goes on to four, uh, 48 prophecies, and it literally is so insane, I'm not even going to talk about it. It's just confusing. It's so insane, and that's just 48 out of 300. And after looking at this, looking at the probability of the matter, all these things were prophesied hundreds of years in advance, and Peter W. Stoner responds in his book with these words. He says, this is not... My computer's having a little slow motion effect going on. We'll jump back to it. He says, this, there we go. This is not merely evidence. It is proof of the Bible's inspiration by God. Proof so definite that the universe is not large enough to hold the evidence. This, this is just, I mean, it's mind-boggling. God gives us evidence. The Bible says in Romans chapter, or, or Isaiah chapter 1 verse 18, Come now and let us what? Reason together. What is reason? Reason is a function of the brain. You are to reason. And he says, come now. God wants us to be thinking people. He wants us to not just blindly believe in anything. 
Any, anybody comes up with an idea, oh, I just believe whatever you say. He wants us to actually reason. He wants us to think, and he gives us evidence for who he is. I mean, he goes even further. Peter W. Stoner did not mention, mention the prophecy. We're not going to look at it tonight, but uh, in Daniel chapter 9, that prophecy is so fantastic. Now, all those prophecies had to be fulfilled. Many of the prophecies of the Messiah had to be fulfilled within just a three and a half year period right here from the Bible prophesied that the Messiah would be anointed for his ministry in 27 AD, that he would be crucified in exactly 31 AD and then the gospel, the message of Jesus Christ would go to the world in 34 AD. All of these things happened just as the Bible said. So these prophecies couldn't just be fulfilled today or any other time. They actually needed to be fulfilled at a very specific time. They were date sensitive. But it goes even further. The Bible told us the exact year that the Messiah would be crucified. But if you look into it further, according to the sacrificial system, according to the festivals of Judaism, the, they, it also shows us the exact month that he would be crucified. But it goes so far because it would specifically be in connection with the Passover. So it was the exact day of the year of all earth's history. There was a specified day that the Messiah would die for our sins. And guess what happened? Jesus, for our sakes, died for us some 2,000 years ago. And do you know, God actually, God distinguishes himself in the Old Testament from all the other so-called gods. How does he do it? How does he differentiate? He actually says something fascinating in the Bible in Isaiah chapter 46, verse 9 and 10. The Bible tells us, it says, Remember the former things of old, God says, for I am God and there is none else. I am God and there is none like me. Now what, what gives God the audacity to say, there's no other God, I'm the only God. What gives the God of the Old Testament, the God of the Bible, the audacity to say, there's no other God but me? He tells us in verse 10. He says, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, the things that are not yet done. The God of the Bible says, listen, the difference between me and the other so-called gods is that I will reveal to you the future before it comes to pass. And Jesus says in John chapter 14, verse 29, 29 and now I have told you, Jesus said, before it come to pass, that when it is come to pass, you might, what? Believe. He wants you to use your reason that you see, wow, how could it be that these things have happened? God gives us evidence that He is. Jesus gives us evidence that He is who He claimed to be. And we can trust the Word of God. He gives us ample evidence. And if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the prophecy in Isaiah chapter 53. We're going to look tonight at how the Messiah overcame. How Jesus overcame in His own experience. This is such a beautiful passage. Uh, one of the most popular passages in the Old Testament, at least within Christianity. At least within Christianity. And it's interesting because if you look at many of the, the uh, Jewish authors after the time of the Messiah, but uh, for hundreds of years, one of the things you'll notice is that the writers in Judaism acknowledge that, I, many of them, acknowledge that in Isaiah chapter 53, this is a message, a prophecy, in fact, of the Messiah to come. They recognize that, many of them. And so we read here, and Isaiah the prophet has these words. He begins by saying in Isaiah chapter 53, he says, Who has believed our, what? Report. And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? Notice Isaiah begins this prophecy by saying, Who is even going to believe what I'm talking about? Who is even going to believe this message? Isn't that interesting? Before he even comes to the Messiah, he recognized there would be a lot of skepticism 
about this Messiah that was to come to planet Earth? Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of a dry ground. It says he has no form nor comeliness. That means no, no glory. And when he, we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. Get the picture. The prophecy of the Messiah is not he will be stately and kingly, but rather that he would just be an ordinary Jew. Nothing special. He would just be a common worker. He would be a carpenter. Nothing special. And strangely enough, you know, he would come from Bethlehem, right? And so here's this strange picture of the Messiah. Just an average Joe. If he were walking down the street, he wouldn't even catch your eye. So what a strange thing about the great Messiah, the one who would save the world. It goes on to say in verse 3, He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. The picture of Jesus here, the picture of this Messiah who was to come, is someone that something so horrible, he was being beaten, he was being lacerated, and it was so horrible that we didn't even want to see it. We literally would shield our face from this terrible experience, the ordeal that he was going through. But then it says in verse 4, Surely he has borne our what? Griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are what? We are healed. So we have this picture of the Messiah that will come in the future. He will, he will suffer. He will be beaten. He will be bruised. And the suffering that he went through with his stripes as they took the whips as they took the whips that had little uh, you know, bones or stones tied to the end of them, as they were whipping his back and his, his back was being lacerated, literally uh, opening up with ribbons of quivering flesh. As Jesus was going through this, it says, with his stripes we are healed. That he became the sacrifice. All we like sheep, the next text says, have what? Gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the what? The iniquity of us all. What a strange prophecy. I was sharing this prophecy in a university in Ontario, Canada, the University of Western Ontario. It's a large university. I think there's around 30,000 students. I was invited to come and speak and present on, on some of the evidences of Christianity in the Bible. And I was sharing this. See, I, I was actually asked to come, and it was very uncomfortable. Typically, I'm in a situation like this, and people kind of choose to be there. But I was invited to come there and speak in an atrium. And in that atrium, the difficulty was I was standing there, and it wasn't like I was just standing on a soapbox yelling at people. They actually set it up, and there are people there uh, eating because there's restaurants right there in the university. There's a bar right around the corner. And so people are on, uh, uh, over here, actually, if I remember correctly, over here are the restaurants, and over to my right were the seats where people are sitting and I'm speaking to these people they didn't really come for it but they asked me to come anyway so there I am and I'm speaking and I'm sharing these things and, and it's, it's quite awkward but I'm doing it and people are walking by because I'm in an atrium and I'm talking to them as they're walking by asking them a question they'll maybe answer it was awkward but nevertheless uh, the final night there was a band playing in the bar so it was too loud to stay out in the atrium so we moved into a side room that was right near there 
And so people came in, and, and off to my left, we had some Muslim young ladies, and different people were in the crowd, and I don't know who's there, I don't know who's who, and I begin to share some of this prophecy of Isaiah chapter 53. Now, uh, mind you, I had uh, always believed that I was Dutch, basically uh, mostly completely Dutch. And my grandmother just told me uh, uh, maybe a year and a half ago that we had Jewish heritage, and I didn't know that. And so I was sharing this beautiful prophecy, and as I was sharing it, I began to share a true story of a college here in, in the state of California. And one of the uh, quarterbacks, actually the quarterback for the team, was a Jew. He was of Jewish descent, and that team here in California won the Rose Bowl that year. Rose Bowl is the biggest football uh, game for the year in college football. And what ended up happening was there were two students, so there were some students sitting down with this college quarterback, and he was Jewish, and they were Christian, and they began showing him prophecies from the Old Testament and showing in the New Testament. And as they're showing them to him, they're showing, look, the Messiah would be, uh, you know, of the tribe of Judah. And then in the New Testament, it says Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. The Old Testament shows us that he would come from Bethlehem in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. And the New Testament reveals Jesus was born in Bethlehem. The Bible says that he would be, uh, you know, he would go through this suffering for us. And they showed him Isaiah chapter 53. And they showed him prophecy after prophecy after prophecy. And showed how it was fulfilled in the New Testament. And this, they're in a room of people just studying. Not studying the Bible, but they're studying all kinds of things. But they're studying the Bible. And he stood up and he said, how could you do this to me? How could you do this to me? A trick Bible. I can't believe you would use a trick Bible on me like this. And he said, one of the young men said, no, 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 brother, this isn't a trick Bible. Do you have a Tanakh of your own? Do you have the Old Testament? And he said, yes. And he said, we're going to write these texts down, and you go look them up in your own Tanakh and see if they're in there. He said, okay, I'll do it. He went home, he pulled out his Hebrew Old Testament. He began to look up the references, and guess what happened when he looked at the first one? It was there. He goes to the second one. It's there. He goes to the third. It's there. Finally, he comes to the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 53, and he thinks, oh, no. What on earth? They're all there. He's so troubled by it. He's so shaken by it that this quarterback ends up going to it. And keep in mind, I'm sharing this story at the university there of Western Ontario. And so here he is, he goes to his, uh, his rabbi, like, like a pastor, he goes to his rabbi and he says, Rabbi, I don't understand. He says, can you tell me what this prophecy in Isaiah chapter 53 is talking about? Who is this suffering servant that the Bible is referring to? And you know what his, his rabbi said to him? His rabbi said, me? When I read Isaiah chapter 53? It looks like it's talking about Jesus. He said, but we don't believe that, so I don't believe it. Now, do you think that was a convincing argument to this young man? He thought, what on earth? And he ended up coming back, and guess what? This young man gave his life to Jesus Christ. I finished telling the story, and I had no clue that in the very back of the audience, there was a Jewish man there, and he stood up and was absolutely furious. Why did you tell that story? I don't know the answer to it. And he literally came right down. He came right down in front of me. And he was livid. One of the young men told me afterward, he said, I thought that guy was going to hit you. And I was nervous. To be honest with you, I'm standing there and I am, I'm nervous, right? And, 
And so he goes on and he's just furious and he's going off. And finally I said, uh, I didn't say anything actually. I was silent. And then he paused and I said, can I say something? And he said, no. I said, okay. And I let him keep going. And then finally he said his piece and he began to storm out of the room. And as he stormed out of the room, it, something came to my mind. And it was a strange thing, a very strange thing in my experience. Just the evening before, I had been praying. And I prayed a prayer I've never said before, and I've probably never said since. But in my prayer, I said, God, thank you for using the Jewish people to give me the Bible. And so as he's walking, I said, brother, I just want to let you know that just last night I was praying God and thanking Him for the Jewish people, that He used them to give people like me the Bible. And He just, ah, you know, was angry and He stormed off. And, I, you know, I know, I mean, I have the Muslim young ladies over here. Everybody's uncomfortable. I mean, this is just an uncomfortable situation. And I'm a real one-track mind kind of guy. And so I fully got flustered and all of a sudden I thought, what am I talking about? I was lost. I was totally lost. So uh, what do you do when you're lost? You always... What's on the screen, right? So I turn to the screen, and the next verses that are written on the screen are, he was oppressed, he was afflicted, and he opened not his mouth. And I knew immediately God had orchestrated this whole event. God had worked all of this out. That this prophecy is powerful. It is something that stirs people to the very core. Now listen, Paul, when he saw these things, he fought against it. He fought very, you know, uh, with everything he had to the point of death, killing people. But yet he was changed. He was transformed as we looked and talked about last night. But the Bible tells us that as Jesus was crucified for our sins, as he took the sorrow for us, that something happened much worse than torture on a cross. Psalm 69 in verses 20 and 21, in the prophecy there says something absolutely amazing. The Bible says this, Psalms 69, verse 20 and 21, a prophecy of the Messiah. It says, reproach has broken my heart, and I am full of heaviness. And I looked for some to take pity, and there was none. And for comforters, and I found none. You say, how do we know that's about the Messiah? It says, the reproach has broken my heart. And he's looking for comforters, and there weren't any. The next verse tells us. The next verse, verse 21 says, they gave me also gall for my meat, and in my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. The context here is a prophecy of the Messiah, and the Bible tells us that the Messiah actually would suffer what the Bible calls a broken heart. Reproach has broken my heart. And you know that word reproach in the Bible can either mean reproach or it can mean shame. So Jesus is being shamed, he's being put down, he's being reproached, he's suffering. Have you ever committed a sin that felt so horrible that after you did it, maybe it felt good while you did it, but you were so ashamed you hoped nobody would ever find out about it? Have you ever felt that way before, yes or no? It's a horrible feeling. Jesus was suffering that on the cross. But the thing is, he wasn't just suffering his own pain and suffering on the cross. The interesting thing is, in, in reality, you and I can only experience our own suffering, right? I can never literally feel your pain. You can never feel, I mean, we can have nice gestures and say, oh, I feel your pain, brother. But we never really feel somebody else's pain. But Jesus, according to the Bible, he says he bore our griefs and carried our 
sorrows. Yet we did esteem Him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Jesus was suffering for our sins. He was feeling the shame, the pain, and His people were mocking Him. As He was hanging there on the cross, something was happening. Something was tearing Him apart. He actually suffered a broken heart. And you know that we never knew that you could actually die of a broken heart. It wasn't too long ago in the 20th century where scientists began to discover and they came up with a term for a disease that we might call broken heart syndrome. They call it stress-induced cardiomyopathy or Takotsubo syndrome. You say, what on earth is that? Basically, Takotsubo is an is a octopus-type trap that the heart, when somebody, they, they, they don't even have, it's not as if their, their arteries are clogged or, or anything like that. They're actually clean. They're actually, they could be healthy even, but something has happened in their life and the stress is so intense, so horrendous. This is not normal stress, like, oh, i got to take a test and it's difficult. This is extreme stress. And in these situations, people who are otherwise healthy can actually suffer what is called a broken heart and can actually die from this disease of a broken heart. In Jesus, many have died from a crucifixion. But have you ever had pain in your life, emotional pain that, was, that you thought this is worse than physical pain any day? Have you ever felt that way before? I'll tell you, I've, been, I've had the tar beaten out of me. And I have had times in my life where something emotional had happened that was so painful that I thought I would rather, I would rather be beaten than suffer what I'm suffering emotionally, right? Have you ever felt something like that? Maybe, maybe I'm just a crazy guy. It feels that way, but I, I felt that way. But Jesus went through a suffering that was great. Yes, the physical pain was intense. They say the way it works is that they would actually pierce them through their wrists. Because if you pierce them through the hands, it would actually just rip through. But they considered the wrist part of the hand. And so as they pierced through uh, the, the nails into their, into their wrists, and then they would pierce both feet, one through the other, and all the way. And they would, they would have to lift themselves up, helping themselves breathe as they were on the cross. And it was excruciating. That word actually comes from the Latin ex crucia or out of the cross as they were suffering this intense pain Jesus is dying and the Bible says not the blood dripping down his hands or down his forehead from the crown of thorns not that killed him but the Bible actually teaches that Jesus suffered a broken heart for our shame Jesus gave all for us Jesus died for us I want you to think about this with me my friends if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Psalms chapter 22. This is another prophecy. Now, keep in mind as we look at Psalms 22 that in Isaiah chapter 53, Isaiah chapter 53 is an outward perspective. It's a view of the Messiah suffering for our sins. It's, it's like looking in, you get, a, you get a window into the experience of the Messiah, meaning you get to see it from an outward experience. But Psalms chapter 22 is, is the inward experience that Jesus was suffering. Now keep in mind, uh, back in Bible times, this was not called Psalm 22. It was one of the Psalms, but the Psalms for the Hebrews were not numbered like they are today. So it was basically the way that you would help someone know what, what Psalm you were turning to would be you would quote the first line. Now we do that with, with songs today, right? Sometimes we say, if I say amazing grace, you think what? How sweet the sound. You can go right into it. I give you the first line and you can start rolling with it. And so for a, for a Jewish person, if they wanted to say, okay, hey, let's go over the Lord is my shepherd. Does that make sense? 
Not Psalm 23, but the Lord is my shepherd. And you go, okay, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And so here in Psalms chapter 22, imagine this. Imagine this. It says in Psalms 22, it begins with these words, My God, my God, why hast thou what? Forsaken me. Here's Jesus hanging on the cross, and he's being, because your sin and my sin, he's hanging on that cross, and as he's hanging there dying, he's feeling this separation that he's never had before. For the first time, he can't see the love of his Father's face, he can't see the acceptance of his Heavenly Father, and he's suffering being separated, and he cries out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It's kind of like he was saying, open your Bibles to Psalm 22. Open your Bible to Psalm 22. Imagine if they would have caught on. Notice what the prophecy says here. Notice when we read forward. Imagine they think, okay, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And they start going through the song. Why art thou so far from helping me and from the words of my roaring? Oh, Jesus is suffering here. This psalm is the internal struggle that Jesus was going through. Verse 2. Oh, my God. I cry in the daytime, but you hear me not. And in the night season, and am not silent. But you are holy, O you that inhabit the praise of Israel. So here he is dying, he's suffering, and it's as if his heart is crying out, Father, but you are still holy. You inhabit the praise of Israel. Jesus overcame, even in the midst of the darkness, where he couldn't see the light of his Father. And friends, sometimes you are there. Where you can't, it's so dark around you that you can't even see the light of your Savior. But Jesus cried out, Father, you still inhabit the praises of Israel. I love you. I trust you anyway, though I cannot see your face. Jesus, you are suffering. And so imagine if they would have paid attention. It says in verse 4, our fathers trusted in you. They trusted in you to deliver them. They cried unto you and were delivered. They trusted in you and were not confounded. And then notice what Jesus said. So he's looking. He's giving glory to the Father. We trust in you. We love you. We care for you. But then he comes back to himself. And he says in verse 6, But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised of the people. So Jesus is suffering. He's being scorned. They're mocking Him. They're deriding Him. And notice what they say as they scorn Him. The next verse tells us. Verse 7, And they that see Me laugh Me to scorn. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head saying, He trusted on the Lord that He would deliver him. Let Him deliver him, seeing He delighted in him. Do you see what would have happened? As, the, as these men, the Pharisees, as the Sadducees, the religious leaders, if they would have thought when Jesus in essence said, open your Bible to Psalm 22, and they, and they begin to think about this, they would have seen that they were actually quoting the exact words of prophecy that were foretold here in Psalm 22. They would have been horrified in recognizing, I can't believe I'm fulfilling prophecy at this very moment. Jesus is sharing with them this experience, or rather, he's going through this experience, and notice what he says in verse 16. He says, for dogs have surrounded me, meaning these men who have become just evil, he said, these men have surrounded me, the assembly of the wicked have enclosed me, and then the prophecy says, they pierced my, what? My hands and my feet. They pierced my hands and my feet. Did you know that the Jews did not use crucifixion as a form of capital punishment? 
What a strange prophecy. Hundreds of years before the death of Christ, and here he is hanging upon the cross, and he says, these men have surrounded me. They are cursing me. They're saying, if you trusted in God, God should bring you down. And then he says, they pierced my hands and my feet. And then it goes on to say, verse 17, I tell all my bones, I can see all my bones. They look and stare upon me. They part my garments among them and cast lots upon my what? My vesture. Do you get the picture? This is Jesus' personal testimony. Though David may have gone through a very similar situation, it was not the same in the sense of a crucifixion. This is a prophecy of the Messiah. He said, while I'm here, while they have crucified me, while I'm hanging upon the cross, now they're casting lots for my clothing. Jesus is suffering all of these things. He's dying. And as He dies in our place, He doesn't die from the pain of the cross. He doesn't die from the suffering inflicted by the, the torturous whips or the, of, or the thorn of crowns upon His head. Jesus dies of a broken heart. With the weight of my sin and your sin hanging upon Jesus. Jesus gave all for us. You may have heard the old story about a young man by the name, they call him Tim. It's a story of a one-room, one of those old one-room classrooms, or one-room schools, I should say, back about the turn of the 20th century. And the story goes that this school was a school of absolute derelicts, rascals, terrible children. So bad they couldn't keep a teacher. And they hired a new teacher, and they told him, listen, this is a difficult school. I mean, crazy difficult. Nobody, most teachers can't make six months. Many of them leave within weeks. We want you to do what you can, do whatever you can. And you see this guy, uh, this guy was skinny. He had glasses. And they, you know, he finally comes to the first day of school, and, you know, he's getting everything ready, the chalk for the blackboard, and, and finally the students come, they come wandering in, and finally they all get in there, and they're loud, and they're raucous, and they're making all kinds of noise, and, and finally the teacher begins to write his name, Mr. Blackburn, on the, on the blackboard, and as he does it, one of the students takes a spitwad and whoosh, hits, the, hits the blackboard right near him, and he sees it, and he just keeps writing. And he finally turns around and he said, I, I'm, I'm Mr. Blackburn, and I want to let you know, I've, I've discovered, I've heard it said that you young people absolutely hate rules. Is that true? Yes or no? And they said, yeah, yeah, we hate rules. We hate all these things. He said, is that so? He said, this year is going to be different. This year we're going to do things a little differently. We are going to this year, I'm not going to make any rules for you. You're going to make the rules. And one of them said, yeah, I like this guy. This guy's all right. And one of them had said just a moment before, I don't think this guy will last a week, right? But now they all love him. He said, listen, I want you to make the rules. Are, are you okay with making the rules? And if you make the rules, will you obey them? And they said, we'll do it. And he said, okay, make the rules. And, you know, they began to come up with this thing and this thing. One of them shouted out, you know what? I am sick of people talking when I'm trying to talk. So I think what we need to do is if somebody talks while somebody else is talking, we give them 10 licks with a hickory switch. And the teacher said, are you serious? And they said, yes. And 
They said, okay. He said, all right, I'll write it on the board. Ten licks with a hickory switch for uh, talking out of turn and this and that. And they go through each one and they get to, uh, finally, uh, one, of, one of the students in the class said, I am absolutely sick and tired of people stealing my lunch. So I want 15 licks with the hickory switch if they're caught. And the teacher said, 15 licks? Are you sure? And they said, yeah, that's what we want. And they finally, they have all their list of rules. And, and as the teacher's looking at him, he thought, I never would have made rules this harsh. But he didn't tell him. He didn't tell him that. He said, now, okay, now let me ask you a question. Did, did you, who made these rules? Did I make them or did you? And they said, we made them. He said, so are you going to obey them? Yeah. And he said, okay, we start right now. And guess what happened? Silence. And so as time begins to go on, the first day, these kids, you would have thought you were in a school of angels. It was amazing. And so the next day, it was going well. The day after that, then all of a sudden toward the end of the week, I mean, there has not been a mishap. They're turning in their homework. Everything's amazing. But what happens toward the latter portion of the week, one of the students, big Tom Brown, he says, hey, it was lunchtime. Somebody stole my lunch. And the he said, all right, all right. The teacher said, everybody sit down, take your lunch, sit down. And, and, and the teacher said, well, maybe you just misplaced your lunch. And he said, no, 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 teach. Listen, I found my lunch, but someone's eating half of my sandwich. Look at it. You can tell. And the teacher said, I guess you're right. He said, all right, nobody's going to do anything. Nobody's going to eat. Nobody's going to do anything. We're not going to do a thing until one of you confesses who ate the sandwich. And they sat there for a bit, and it was quiet. And, you know, it's tense, and everybody feels kind of uncomfortable. Kids are kind of looking around, and finally, one of the smallest kids in the classroom, a young kid by the name of Tim. Timothy raises his, he, his hand and simultaneously lowers his head, and he said, teacher, I did it. And the teacher said, Tim, why did you do this? You know better than that. He said, all right, everybody knows the rule, 15 licks with the hickory switch. And he said to big Tom, he said, Tom Brown, you go and find a hickory switch that's going to be just right so we can give him the licks outside. And so they all go out and, and Tom Brown, he finds, finds a good old hickory switch, a good old hickory stick. He is ready. He says, teach, here it is. I think this one will do just right. And so young Tim comes out and there's a, there's a tree stump right there. And the teacher said, now, Tim, you know the rules. 15 licks with the hickory switch, and Tim, I want you to take your coat off, take your shirt off. Now, young Tim had always wore this, this red plaid coat to school, always. Nobody had ever seen him without this big, heavy, red, red, and, uh, you know, red and black coat. And so, you know, he says, teach, can I, can I leave my coat on? And the teacher said, no, you know the rule. Tim, take your, take your coat off. And so Tim takes his, his coat off, and he has this, this filthy white T-shirt underneath, and you could tell he was scrawny under there. But then, Tim said, teach, can I just leave the shirt on? And the teacher said, no, Tim, you know the rules. The rules are 10 licks with the hickory switch, now take your shirt off. And so Tim slowly begins to lift up, he pulls off his shirt, and as the shirt comes off his back, there are gasps from every one of the boys there. <gasps> they could read the story loud and clear. They could see the bruises that had, been come, that had come from a no-good alcoholic father. He was as skinny as a rail, all his bones were showing. And as they saw this, everyone, including the teacher, their hearts just dropped. And 
the teacher said, Tim, why did you do this? Why did you do this, Tim? And Tim said, teach, I was just so hungry. I'm just so hungry. Tom now, the big strapping farm boy, he begins, tears begin streaming down his, te- his cheeks and he says, teach, teach, listen, don't do it. Listen, I can forgive him. We're going to let it go. We'll let it go. And the teacher said, I'm sorry, but we can't let it go. These are the rules. These are the rules. I'm sorry, we have to do it. He said, all right, Tim, put your hands down on the, on the tree stump. And Tim begins to put his hands down and the teacher begins to raise his stick. And as he does, Tom jumps up and he grabs the teacher's arm. He says, teacher, don't do it. And he says, he says, listen, we have to. There's no other option. And Tom says, okay, we'll do it. He said, just a second. And young Tom Brown pulls off his coat, pulls off his shirt with the strapping young back of a young farm boy. And he reaches down and he reaches his arms around young little Tim. And he says, all right, teacher, you could administer the punishment. Jesus knew that we would not be able to handle the punishment. That we would not come up from the other side of death's dark door. And Jesus is saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I care for you. I gave my life and I was willing to give my eternal life if necessary. I couldn't see through the portals of the tomb for you. And Jesus says, will you give your life for me? Jesus is coming again soon, friends. The Bible says that one of the greatest prophecies, Matthew 24, 14, which says in this gospel, the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations and then shall the end come. Listen, the gospel is almost going to the world in the sense that we are years away from the gospel being printed in every known language. From the Wycliffe Association. They are printing the gospel in every known language. We are living in a time where it's actually a reality that the gospel can go to the entire planet. And Jesus is saying, I've given all for you. Will you give your life for me? Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for what Jesus has done. He's given all for us. He loved us with a love that was stronger than death. And Father, I pray that you would draw us near, that we would give hearts, our hearts wholly to you. And Father, I pray also that we would maybe find a friend, maybe a friend who knows these things, maybe a friend who doesn't know these things, and that, you would, that we would bring them out and that lives would be transformed just like our Savior was faithful to the end. In the name of Jesus, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.